Welcome to the QI Chatroom. I'm your host, Kelly Bond. This podcast is brought to you by Redwood Community Health Coalition, or RCHC for short. We're a network of community health centers and a wellness education site throughout Marin, Napa, Sonoma, and Yolo counties. We formed in 1994 with a mission of improving access to and the quality of care provided for underserved and uninsured people. This podcast is all about quality improvement, or QI, in healthcare. We'll bring you speakers from our member health centers, outside health centers, county and federal agencies, healthcare plans, and more. Those speakers will discuss promising practices they've identified at health centers, the latest data on specific health topics, and engage in conversation with our live audience. We've been hosting these chat rooms since late 2018 and transitioned to the podcast format in the fall of 2019 to reach a greater range of listeners. We hope you'll join us as we share the latest in quality improvement with you. This episode features Max Perret, who is the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at Redwood Community Health Coalition. He has 10 years' experience working at the intersection of political advocacy, nonprofits, and government. He has a bachelor's degree in politics and legal studies from UC Santa Cruz and a master's of science in politics and government in the European Union from the London School of Economics. He lives in Marin and has been consulting with various political campaigns and initiatives. He previously worked for Community Action Marin. Max will be interviewing our two guest speakers, Dr. Mike Witte, Chief Medical Officer at the California Primary Care Association, and Cindy Keltner, Director of Transformation at the California Primary Care Association. The topic for today's session is COVID telehealth reflection and telehealth policy response. Here's Max. Thank you so much, Kelly, and uh, thank you for having me as the guest host on the QI uh, Chatroom podcast. Uh, today, as Kelly mentioned, uh, we will be discussing a topic uh, that I know is on the minds of many of our listeners, uh, that being telehealth. Um, at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, decision makers at state and the federal levels moved quickly to create a policy framework to provide a seamless transition from in-person visits to telephone and, in some cases, video visits when appropriate. And now, with this policy framework in place, and provisions um, affecting pay for Medi-Cal providers uh, possibly expiring in the months ahead. Uh, we have a chance right now to reflect on what we've learned over the last year and talk about how we might continue what has worked well. I'm very excited that today we're joined with, by two guests who are experts on quality medical care. Here with us today um, are both uh, two leaders of the California Primary Care Association, CPCA. Uh, Dr. Mike Witte is the Chief Medical Officer of CPCA, and Cindy Keltner is the Director of Care Transformation. Uh, thank you very much to both of you uh, for being with us and joining in this discussion. Pleasure, thank you. Yep, thank you. So to start off our conversation today, uh, I thought I would ask you both um, a, a general question of what have we learned uh, during the last year of providing care during the pandemic? Hmm. Mike, you wanna start? Sure. Um, 
I think the uh, one of the things that it's it can be uh, one of those glass half empty, glass half full uh, situations. And I think one of the things we are looking at hard, uh, and perhaps it's because we do deal with glass half full and dealing with many of the vulnerable populations we take care of, uh, our members, the all the health centers, uh, federally qualified health centers, and uh, what are what we call lookalikes that are becoming federally qualified health centers and rural health centers. Um, take care of uh, vulnerable populations that are very challenged with access to healthcare. So that the, if we can develop and, and are able to develop new entry points, new contact points and ways of contacting these vulnerable populations, it's an opportunity to improve equity and improve quality of care for these vulnerable populations. Something like 90% of the people we take care of in these clinics are 200% of federal poverty level or less. So they're definitely uh, at risk in terms of their economic security, which implies a lot about other social determinants of health, of course. And so we, we've learned a bunch of stuff in terms of the limitations of how we can access um, people by virtue of having to look at what are ways that we can under the public health emergency and under the waivers that that's provided us to be able to have different points of access like telehealth and telephonic care and being able to use other members of our teams to be able to provide some of that care as well. But Cindy, why don't you uh, complete that picture and uh, correct some of the lies I've told. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Dr. Woody. Um, you, I mean, I think you covered a, a lot of great talking points, but um, I would say that, you know, from a really pragmatic perspective that um, I think a lot of our members, uh, a lot of clinics weren't doing a lot of virtual care. They weren't doing a lot of telehealth. And I think that um, many uh, of those clinics and providers really realized that a lot of care that they provide on a regular basis to patients can be done virtually. It is doable. Um, I think one of the things that goes with that piece is that um, providing care virtually does, uh, you need to sort of expand your skill set. It takes a little bit of a different tactic sometimes to um, take care of patients virtually, especially if it is not someone that, um, that you have seen on a regular basis, that developing relationships with patients virtually takes a little bit of a different skill set um, to create that trust uh, relationship uh, with the patient. And I think really important aspect of how we've been providing uh, healthcare during the pandemic is that our, our patients really love the opportunity to get care virtually not necessarily just because they feel safer during the pandemic and those, um, that sort of environment, but because it really changes the dynamic um, of making it more patient-centered. Um, our, our patients, especially behavioral health patients, love the option for virtual care. They feel much more comfortable talking with providers um, uh, in, in that environment. And it really has increased access for patients um, to keep appointments, um, number one, because they don't have to worry about transportation, but also they can really do a visit in 
you know, an hour or two hours instead of, you know, taking two buses to get there and, you know, an hour to travel, an hour for the appointment and an hour back home. They, it really increases their ability to keep their visits and to see their uh, providers to keep the care going. So I would, I would say those are some of the highlights of what we've learned um, during the pandemic so far. Great. Just touching on, uh, on that last point, Cindy, I think, you know, what we've seen at Redwood Community Health Coalition is uh, going from, you know, very few, if, if any, telehealth visits to uh, a majority, right? And out of uh, all of our visits uh, from March 2020 until February uh, 2021, if you look at that uh, year, 57% um, of the visits uh, in that year uh, among RCHC member health centers uh, were on the telephone, 57%, right? right. An additional 5% yeah. uh, were, were with video and, and the remainder were uh, in person. Um, when you look across the state, are, are you sim seeing similar numbers? Yes, um, we, yes, we are. In fact, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but we have data hot off the press that um, um, uh, the telehealth survey that we just closed last week. So we'll have some data that we can share with all of you um, later. The same trend is happening uh, throughout the state that, you know, I think because when virtual care became available, telephone and audio, uh, uh, telephone audio and telehealth with video both became available. And it was so much easier for patients and providers to um, just pick up the phone and do the visit that a lot of folks, that's how they started this virtual care is mainly through telephone. And, and it's been a challenge for, an, for numerous reasons um, to sort of move over to telehealth and to do the video component. So yeah, I would say, I don't know if the percentages are um, exactly the same, but the majority of visits are still being done telephone only with patients uh, across the state. So you're not, it's not uncommon. Great. And uh, Dr. Witte, um, you know, when, when you're looking across uh, CPCA uh, member health centers across the state, um, are you seeing high numbers uh, on the audio only telephone visits? And and, and why do you think is, that is? Why, why would someone, um, uh, a patient uh, prefer to have a visit or a medical provider prefer to have uh, a visit on the phone versus uh, with video or what are the limitations there? Sure. Yeah, well, there, I think there's, there's several reasons. Um, but one of them that's uh, clear is that broadband issues. Um, I think that particularly because uh, many of our, uh, many of our uh, patients um, have limit, limits in terms of uh, what kind of electronic access they have. Um, there's a huge percentage of our patients that, uh, and I think Cindy might uh, be able to document this later, we can with surveys as to how many people actually have smartphones or at least cell phones. And uh, being able then to be able to make that kind of contact telephonically through a handheld phone uh, even for, and there are some of the, uh, some of our centers in some of the urban areas have gone to uh, homeless encampments and provided flip phones and uh, cheap uh, kind of throwaway phones to some of those folks uh, to be able to make contact. So that 
it, it actually is an equity issue with respect to broadband instead of folks that have access to a quote unquote good laptop that might be or iPad or iPad be able to sit at home and uh, and have that kind of a telehealth conversation being able to have a telephonic conversation has that uh, kind of leveling of the playing field that way. Another thing that we found, and again, surveys have, have supported, is that many, and I think a majority of our behavioral health clients would much rather not be seen during their virtual visit. Um, they would much rather feel safer with the behavioral health, often very sensitive issues, to be able to be heard but not necessarily be seen or have their environment behind them say, be seen. So there are some def definite benefits to kind of sort of an, uh, um, a uh, perceived at least privacy issue for a lot of people and being able to have that kind of access. And for us to be able to continue to provide that access and be compensated for it, which is an issue I, I'm sure we'll talk about, which is uh, an important one, of course. Great. So in addition to behavioral health, um, Dr. Witte, what, uh, what sort of visits, what are some examples? Um, are, there, are there kind of patient stories from, from the front lines of people who were able to uh, get a visit who otherwise might have uh, struggled to make it in in person? Sure. Well, I think that, you know, generally speaking again, you know, Cindy mentioned that, and I think it's one of the things that we really want to continue to focus on is bring the care to the patient. Don't insist on the patient coming to the care. And so whenever we can, we can provide informational visits. For, here's an example, a clear one that happens all the time. Why don't you come back and see me when your lab tests are done? Well, how about a phone call or perhaps a telehealth visit? that can actually review and go through a lot of those lab tests and perhaps the consequences of them. Well, it may be that you wanna kind of decrease your amount of metformin for your diabetes because your blood sugars have been under you know, even better control and gosh, how are you doing in terms of your weight, et cetera, et cetera. Things that actually can be handled without being, having somebody come in to the building to be able to do those things. And there's many other examples of that kind of informational exchange, um, which, which can be done without having that in-person, in-the-room kind of visit. Great. And uh, Cindy, you know, I think we hear sometimes in, in the political world and, and maybe in the press, you know, oh, there's, you know, a concern about quality, right? You know, that, that there's not um, you know, there's not a similar, a similar level of quality when it comes to phone versus video versus in person. Um, what from your experience are you seeing? Are, are, they, are they of similar uh, quality experience for the patient? Are, are medical providers able to provide the same level of care? Um, our experience and anecdotally what we're hearing from um, providers is that yes, that the quality is there. Obviously, we don't have the data yet because um, we're always behind the uh, times and collecting data. But um, you know, patients really, really enjoy um, being able to do a virtual care visit. Um, and there are, as I said, you know, there are many, many things that providers can do. And Dr. Woody gave you a couple of examples. Um, you know, the types of visits that, that you can do with, with patients. Um, and, you know, patients really, 
in, enjoy the ability to have those conversations with their providers. Many of them feel like, especially on a uh, video chat or a video visit, that you know they're eye to eye with their provider and they're having a conversation with them. And he doesn't have his you know nose in the computer and he's not you know doing other things in the room. He they get they you know are identifying that they feel like they're getting more focused attention uh, from the provider. And a lot of clinics are able to do that because for their um, telephone and video visits, they have an MA or someone else on the line with them who can take notes, capture some of the things that the doctor might have been looking in the computer and looking at. So yeah, we, um, we obviously don't have the data yet, but um, anecdotally from uh, patient feedback, um, from patient experience surveys that our members are doing, patients feel like they're getting the same level of care. Um, Providers sometimes want to have their patient want to have their hands on the patient, um, and so you know it, it. It there are times when providers would prefer to do an in person and need to do an in person. Obviously, you can't give a, a vaccine um, over the phone, um, so there are times when you have to do it. But all in all, um, we feel like our our uh, members and providers are giving the same level of great quality care that they gave pre-pandemic to patients virtually on, on, on all the care that they're providing. So we're, we're excited to eventually have some data to substantiate that. But, um, you know, we, we anecdotally are hearing from, from providers that they feel like they are. Great. Well, that's wonderful to hear uh, that you're seeing and, and hearing from, uh, from providers that the level of care is, is equal to uh, what was provided um, previously, at least for, for some uh, forms of visit where appropriate. Um, turning turning our, our attention to the policy landscape, um, you know, at the beginning uh, of uh, this podcast, I, I started by saying that policymakers at both the state and the federal level um, began the pandemic by quickly uh, transforming uh, what was allowed and what was uh, paid in terms of uh, Medi-Cal visits. Uh, to allow both phone and audio, well, phone audio only visits as well as uh, video visits. Um, looking ahead, do you have confidence that that, that can continue post-pandemic? I know there's uh, a bill in the state legislature, AB 32. Uh, we'll actually be having assembly member uh, Cecilia Aguilar-Curry uh, on this podcast uh, later this month on April 26th uh, discussing that bill. Um, you know, do you have do you have hope for the future that we can take some of what we've learned uh, from the last year and 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 continue it? Cindy, why don't you uh, start off, and then we'll go to Dr. Weddy. What I can say is that um, I have a lot of um, a, a lot of hope that it's going to be uh, we're going to be able to continue. I think telehealth probably has a really strong possibility. I think we're still struggling with making the case and getting um, the electeds to um, agree to pay the PPS rate for telephone. But you know, our GA team is right in the midst of things uh, at the Capitol and really, you know, having those hard conversations with the electeds about the reasons why we should be. Um, you know, keeping both options available for patients. We've heard a lot of stories anecdotally and 
from patients and providers about the need for both um, to continue um, post-pandemic or even over the next couple of years. We have created some talking points for clinics to use with their electeds locally. So if you haven't seen those, you should definitely connect with um, with RCHC and, and they can help you with that um, or with us at CPCA and we can help you with that. I think that, you know, we are, we are uh, up to our eyeballs in trying to negotiate a compromise um, with the electeds to keep it as long as we can. And the other thing that's happening sort of on a parallel track is that the state is wanting to have some discussions about creating an alternative payment model, which if we were to go to that um, type of payment model, then, um, you know, there, there would be a different, uh, most clinics would be getting, if they volunteered to participate, they would be getting a per member per month. So they wouldn't have to worry about um, getting the PPS rate um, for that visit. If doing a telephone visit or a video visit was um, the um, best way to provide care to that patient, right time, right place, right methodology, they could do it and they wouldn't have to worry about it because, um, you know, they would be getting uh, the capitated rate. So there's, there's some parallel tracks, but we're really working hard um, and for those who aren't participating, we, um, CPCA does a telehealth clinical task force meeting and you don't have to be a clinician to participate, but um, we do that every other week, I think. And um, that is looking at um, uh, everything from an advocacy and policy perspective. So there's a lot of discussions about how clinics can get involved and be supportive supportive to the um, effort. So if folks are interested, we can send that information to you all so that you can share with um, more of your members. Uh, so Dr. Witte, um, turning to you, what, what are you seeing in terms of the policy landscape um, and specifically when we're looking at uh, the federal level and, and, and also the state level, uh, do, we, do we have hope? Uh, do, do we think that we can have a seamless transition uh, from pandemic to post-pandemic and still allow some of these tools uh, to remain in place for providers and patients alike? Yes, uh, I, I think we do. Uh, and uh, to echo what Cindy had said, I think that we can show that uh, the, the quality of the care is, uh, is such that, um, that it deserves to be uh, continued. And we have to we have to continue to advocate for making that happen. So I think in, in one sense, yes, we have hope, but in a way hope is kind of passive, like, okay, let's make sure that, you know, that, or let's hope that something happens. On the other hand, what we're really starting to see, and certainly at CPCA, we, we, we are involved with advocacy. And in fact, we have uh, lobbyists uh, that, um, that will go to the Capitol in the Sacramento the state level and be able to advocate for a lot of these things. And the, the thing that always comes to mind is that value of the care is what we're really looking at. High value care. Value is quality plus access divided by cost. So that the more we can make that high value care show that it we decrease cost, where's most of the cost? Emergency room, medications, hospitalization. 
And if we can decrease the use of the emergency room, the number of medications that are used, and certainly hospitalization, we should and we can show that these kinds of increased encounter points earlier on in the, uh, in the evolution of somebody's perhaps early sickness or pro proclivity to getting sick, and also what we're now calling more and more, how do we enhance well-being? That all has to do with being able to show higher value. In other words, the community stays healthier. Um, and so that as Cindy was saying, and when we're, we're looking at a kind of a managed care uh, financial picture or economic concept where we're in, we are actually incentivized to keep people healthy. We're not incentivized as we are now to see people and get paid for a sickness visit or perhaps a well visit in person. We can get quote unquote paid to help people keep people healthy on a regular visit or regular uh, uh, monthly payment. And I think that, you know, some of our partners in this obviously need to be the health plans, you know, the people that pay the bills. And can we partner with you health plans to have you recognize that with the appropriate kind of guardrails about certain kinds of encounters, encounters with our medical assistants by phone or a, a, a nurse, people that are not now quote unquote billable, that we can actually show that that kind of encounter uh, can show higher value. And when we can do that and convince the plan, show the plans with some good data that this is happening, then I think that we can really get somewhere. And as Cindy alluded to, this really is, informs a different way of getting paid. So when we have alternative payment methodology, we're looking at high, what we, we like to look at is high value care and value-based care. Great, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Witte for that. Um, description. I mean, I think when it comes, you know, from my perspective uh, to, you know, telehealth, it, it really comes down to an equity issue, right? Is what are we willing uh, to pay for, uh, for access uh, to care, right? And, you know, I, I'm personally a, a Kaiser patient, right? So when I need to see my doctor, I can uh, drive 30 minutes to the nearest Kaiser a hospital and see my, my doctor or uh, go to the emergency room. I could, could alternatively open up an app on my smartphone. Uh, I could send a photo. I could send an email. I could send a message through the app. I could schedule a video visit. I could schedule a phone call. There's so many ways. I could go online on my laptop or on my uh, iPad, right? Um, but when it comes to community health centers, it seems extremely inequitable uh, to discontinue uh, that telehealth um, visit option, right? Because that's creating a situation where some people can can go to providers easily and accessibly, and others cannot. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, are you are you seeing this as as an equity issue as well? Absolutely. Well, yes, and uh, I know Cindy will have something to say about this as well. But uh, are the the licenses for our federally qualified health centers have a four walls kind of concept, which is very historic. And um, it basically says, you, here's your clinic, do your care here. That's, that basically is, is informing what's in-person care. I, I, so that being able to get past this whole four walls concept and recognize that what we are about is community health and community health care, is, it really turns it on its head. And being able to deliver and provide good care, high value care, 
in ways that we can through our teams of, of providers, that includes the medical assistants, the RNs, perhaps LVNs, nutritionists, et cetera, that can be part of how we can create a model that we can actually deliver the care outside of that four walls kind of concept really enhances the equity of the care that we can deliver. That, that is huge. I wanna say one more thing and I'll try to keep this really fast. I think it's really important that trusting relationships are built in to the value of how we provide care. And I will say that I believe that trusting relationships need an in-person kind of communication at some point, probably early on, a, say a quote unquote new patient that actually where you, that the, you the patient can actually get to meet members of your healthcare team to be able to know who these human beings are that care about you. And that actually will now be able to have different ways to contact you. But that trusting relationship is critical. Great. Uh, Cindy, do you have anything to, to add on? Um, you know, I totally agree with everything Dr. Woody said. And I think we identified already in conversation a couple of other areas. So, you know, um, many, uh, uh, a number of our members' clinics are collecting um, social determinants of health data. And we know from uh, early collection and aggregation of that data that transportation is one of the top three challenges for our patients um, for care. So obviously um, not allowing them to have access to virtual care um, to help alleviate some of that, that, that social need of transportation is, is not equitable. We, we need to continue to have that available. Um, I think that um, the, other, the other disparity that is is more of a stigma thing that we talked about and that is behavioral health and how our behavioral health patients really prefer um, virtual care for a, a lot of reasons. Dr. Witte mentioned uh, several. I think the other thing that um, we hear from um, just an equity is that by allowing them to do telephone visits, if they're at home and, or even at work maybe perhaps, they um, have the ability, if they're doing a telephone only, to really step out of a room and get more privacy if they need to, to be able to share information. So, um, you know, it's, it's a stigma to, for um, many of the patients who are accessing or trying to access behavioral health um, services. So anything that we can do to reduce that stigma and reduce the disparities about um, care those patients are receiving um, you know, we, we need to try to accomplish, so. Great, thank you, Cindy. And would you say um, access to broadband and high quality internet is also uh, a barrier to video? I know, um, I think both of you touched on that uh, in your intro remarks is, is this issue of uh, access to to you know, quality internet service, um, and I and I guess you know part of my question is also on on kind of an urban, rural divide. Are we seeing challenges uh, in our more uh, rural areas? Are there also challenges to broadband access uh, in urban areas? What are we seeing uh, in terms of internet access? Yeah, I think there's access um, to broadband issues no matter what part of the state you're looking at. Obviously. 
we hear from the frontier rural north that just having access to the internet period is challenging. Um, uh, and even sometimes, um, you know, access to be able to, uh, cellular access to be able to use your smartphone is difficult. But there's also challenges in, um, in urban areas around this. So um, it, it, there may be broadband available, but it's more expensive and so patients can't afford it. Um, they're, um, you know, because of the population or the size of the population, things are very slow. And so they keep getting kicked off of um, a telehealth visit of a video visit. So it, I think, um, I think it, it's, uh, you, can, you can see it in many different areas of the state. It's not just a rural thing. Um, but, you know, folks are getting creative. We have clinics that um, if someone doesn't have um, broadband, they are telling them to, you know, drive to the clinic, park in the parking lot and use, um, they have free Wi-Fi. They've expanded, the clinics have expanded their Wi-Fi so that patients could come and do that. We have a, a couple of clinics that we've heard have developed relationships with community-based organizations that have the ability to provide some support. So, um, you know, it, it is an issue. I think it'll continue to be an issue. Obviously, there's legislation um, out there that is looking at providing it more broadly and making it more accessible in, in other areas, especially in the rural areas. But it, it, I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge, whether it's a broadband resource or just the ability to, um, to have access because of the cost of, of those services. Yeah, I think that um, the telephone piece is, is, is really key. And that's what I've, I've heard today from both of you as well, is, is reinforcing uh, the challenges when it comes to uh, accessing telehealth services if, if video is the only option. Um, you know, my understanding is is currently uh, the governor's proposal and uh, the state's proposal is is to continue uh, telehealth when it comes to video, uh, but not continue the pay parity when it comes to to audio only. Um, so so I think we have some advocacy to do um, and, and some education to do. So any providers. Uh, on the line that, that want to raise their voice and, and share their experience, right? I think that's all extremely yeah. valuable for, for policymakers to understand what's happening on the ground. I think that there is a, um, that, that there is an issue, again, it comes back to the economics of this, you know, how can we show an offset in terms of the cost of a, let's say, you know, of a phone visit versus the cost of going to the emergency room for someone that can't because we can't afford to have telephone visits because they, we don't get paid for them. And so that, uh, that the person then ends up without that kind of access point and ends up with a much, much more expensive encounter and often much sicker for that matter. You know, I, there is one other thing and this kind of is tangential to this, but in, uh, I, I think it's really an important part for us and that is in primary care. And particularly you mentioned Max rural areas and that is um, either what's called echo, that is asynchronous visits where we can actually have contact with a specialist or that the patient might have some uh, uh, asynchronous, meaning not talking directly at the same time. Uh, but also that 
there's a, a concept which is um, just like that called e-consult where instead of a patient, let's say in a very small community up north, um, being having to travel to a specialist because they have a specialist issue that might be able to be at least handled and, and the data are really good that over 50% of e-consult visits, meaning electronic use of a, of a specialist by a primary care provider, instead of having that patient go to that specialist, that instead I, the primary care provider, provides the information to the specialist about this patient's issue, that over 50% of the time, that patient doesn't have to go to the specialist. We can actually then gain information and knowledge to be able to handle this ourselves with the patient, whether it's in person in the local clinic or perhaps virtually as well. So being able to incorporate specialists into our world, into our primary care world electronically becomes a huge asset as well. At this point, we received a comment from listener Jennifer Durst at Ole Health advocating for continued funding for telehealth in some fashion to help health centers improve quality due to fewer no-shows for routine follow-up visits and lower system costs from negative clinical effects of missed appointments. Anything else to add, Jennifer? Not really. I mean, I'm on the CPCA telehealth work group, so um, we've been discussing a lot of these topics, but um, I I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think I said it in my comments. I just think that it's a really important thing for, you know, our policymakers to understand um, everything that you guys have been advocating for that um, from a patient perspective. And I, I said this to my, in my comment to Max, um, you know, community health centers were founded with the idea that, um, that access to, to healthcare was unequal and, and they really addressed bringing care to rural communities and to underserved communities. And now with the digital divide, we're sort of seeing that happen in a virtual way. And I think telehealth is really the only way that we can now close the gap on disparities in care access. Well said. Thanks, Jennifer. Great. Thank you, Jennifer. And um, thanks for, uh, for raising those uh, points and reinforcing them. Well, I have one more question uh, for both of you, uh, which is what, what do you hope that folks take from this uh, podcast? Uh, what do you think that QI leads especially or, or health center uh, <clears throat> providers, uh, what, what are you hoping that, that they can take uh, uh, from this session? Well, I, I, I wanna say that uh, find your partners. Um, I, I, I would say that health plans, um, and the, uh, perhaps the chief medical officers in the plans, uh, Medi-Cal plans I'm thinking of, uh, are re- need to be, and I think that they can recognize, some of them certainly do, um, but being able to recognize that we're all in this together and to provide that higher value of care needs these different kinds of access points and the cost savings that will come with them. Uh, it's, you know, it's counterintuitive to me to think about the, the money issue in this, but it, it drives the engine so that the more that we can show that good health care is higher value when it costs less to the whole system, because the cost really implies illness. And we don't want that. We want to keep people healthy, keep people healthy. You mentioned the Kaiser model. Absolutely taking a look at Kaiser does better when people stay healthier. 
And uh, we take care of vulnerable populations. Kaiser tends to take care of employed people um, in the sort of middle class. We can, if we can use that same kind of model to be able to show that our teams can provide much better care when we're compensated that way to help keep people healthy, I think we can come a long way. So that kind of advocacy, I think is extremely important. Cindy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a ton of things, obviously, that um, to, obviously keeping this type of care is very important to everyone. And, um, and so we really, we need you to get engaged. We need you to get involved. Um, as Jennifer mentioned, she participates in uh, one of our work groups uh, or task force. Um, you know, we, we need everybody to take that opportunity and we need you to, um, if we send out something and ask for letters of support, um, it would be great if you could respond. Um, if you could have conversations with your electeds locally. Um, there's nothing that impacts decision makers more than hearing from their constituents about um, why they need to keep this care for their uh, patients. And then there's a lot of best practices out there. Don't be, um, don't be shy about sharing what um, you've developed as a best practice. I think sometimes um, clinics shy away from talking about some of the great work that they've done because um, they think everybody's doing the same thing the same way. And so what they're doing is not unique. And that may be the case, but there's also a really good chance that um, you know, what you're doing is a little different and could really help one of your colleagues out there. So don't, don't be shy about um, sharing those best practices. Um, and, you know, some of those are utilizing your staff at the top of their license, um, making sure that you're creating virtual care teams, just like you would if you were seeing patients in the office. Dr. Woody talked a little bit about, you know, uh, trust and empathy and, by having those virtual care teams, you're providing a support for the patients, but also for your staff. Um, and, you know, making sure that you're treating patients the same virtually as you would in the office by doing warm handoffs. If they come in for primary care visit and need behavioral health, and we know that the need for behavioral health has only grown with the um, sheltering in place, just make sure that, um, you're thinking of your care teams the same way for virtual care as you do for your in-person. And then I think um, Jennifer mentioned this a little bit in one of her um, comments is that, you know, uh, no shows have decreased remarkably um, with the use of virtual care. But one of the best practices that we've heard recently from clinics is that if a patient no shows for an in-person visit, they get them on the phone right then and there and say, you, you were scheduled, you've missed your appointment, we have an opening for a virtual visit, would you like to go ahead and talk with the doctor now? So, you know, that, that decreases your no-show rate um, and um, helps you continue to provide that uh, continuous care, that continuum of care for patients that they need to stay healthy. Um, and stay, as Dr. Whitty noted, stay out of the emergency room and stay out of the hospital. Because most patients aren't going to the emergency room or the hospital until they're really, really sick because they're scared about going there as well. So whatever we can do to reach out and provide the care that we need to 
is is a plus for our patients um, uh, and it has to be a win-win for everybody. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yes, uh, thank you very much, yeah. uh, Dr. Witte and, sure. and Cindy for, for being with us and for all the work that you and the entire team at CPCA is doing. Uh, I think it's so important that we're uh, highlighting uh, telehealth um, as, as critical to, to meeting the needs of everyone in the community. Um, just uh, to flag a couple of th things uh, for the listeners. Uh, one uh, is to uh, take a look at the RCHC social media handles as well as the CPCA social media handles. Uh, CPCA is leading uh, Telehealth Tuesdays, which is every Tuesday uh, telehealth stories are shared uh, by a video uh, and other means uh, on the CPCA um, social media handles. And then I, in turn, uh, share them on the RCHC ones. And uh, for those who might not be aware, uh, we have recently gotten a uh, Twitter uh, as well as Instagram uh, to go in addition to our Facebook and LinkedIn. A big thank you to today's presenter, participants, and our listeners. I'm your host, Kelly Bond, and we'll see you next time in the QI chat room. Thank you.